You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. Today's aspect we're looking at is really the beginning of, of really the whole story. It's the gift of regeneration. And so we're going to be looking at this concept of beginning of salvation, where we come from death to life. And so that's going to be starting off our story today as we're going to reflect on grace. And so I want us to look at Ephesians 2. If you turn with me to Ephesians 2, forgive my, my voice a little bit today. I've picked up... Um, I was around a lot of kids and children this last week, and I feel like I picked up the cold that was going around. I've got a little bit of a throat thing. Um, I've got some throat coat tea here, so we're going to see how we do today. Um, Hope you had a a good Thanksgiving. We had a blast. We had a lot of family in town, and uh, a lot of family in town. We we got to host, and there was just a lot of people over and a lot of kids. It It was a great time. Good food, a lot of family. It's a challenge trying to balance the NFL, the World Cup, and family, and caring about all three individually, and in which, you know, it's a struggle for many of us. I understand you are all going through that as well. No, obviously, it was, it was a wonderful time. We had a great time with our friends, and, and, and it's good. We look forward to it. We also look forward to Christmas. I've been looking forward to this series for a while, looking forward to really honing in onto what grace is. So Ephesians 2, a uh, very, very well-known passage to many of us who grew up in church uh, passage that we're probably well familiar with, but I really want to zero in on it today, and in the coming weeks we may look at it again even. There's so much here. Great. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. <clears throat> and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards those uh, towards us in Christ Jesus verse 8 for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is a gift of god not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words and these truths. Sometimes these familiar passages, Lord, maybe don't mean the same things as maybe they once did. And yet, Lord, I pray for many who maybe are hearing this passage for the very first time today, that today would be the day of salvation. God, as we come into your presence today, as we open up your word and you speak to us through it, May you enliven the truths of your word and the realities of grace and faith, repentance and hope as has already been spoke about. And God, thank you for your death that gives us life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm not sure what your background is, 
church or faith. Many of you I've known for a long time. Some of you I don't. Maybe you're visiting today for the first time. You're trying out church again. It's been a while. It often happens around Christmas time. But if I ask you a question, what comes into your mind when you think about God? It's one of the first things. Now, I, I did a lot of prepping already. We read a verse and a passage there earlier, and this is gifts of grace and all of these things. But if you're trying to put yourself on a, on, a, on a level playing field here apart from that, when you think of God, what comes in your mind? Some of the first things that you think about, potentially that you are maybe even feeling. Sometimes maybe we know what we're supposed to say. But if we're being honest, some of the things that come into our mind right off uh, the bat, right off the beginning, right when we're allowing our mind to continue and think through, what, what is it that comes into your mind? What, what do you think about God? I'm not sure, again, your past experiences with church, maybe you've been hurt by uh, the church. Maybe you've been hurt by others. Maybe you feel as God is against you. Maybe you feel as if as God is not on your side or what is God to you? Maybe this is a, a positive thought. God is your hope and your rock. And maybe God is, is something confusing and challenging and something that I can't understand and can't get to know. Maybe God seems really far off for you. A.W. Tozer, and I've shared this quote many times here at this church. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. You could put it together. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Often our past experiences, our backgrounds, our upbringing influences our thoughts and our opinion about God. Not necessarily that our opinion about God changes God in any way, but it certainly changes us, does it not? Do you see God as a loving father? Do you see God as a kind-hearted friend, gentle and lowly, as the book says? The passage says his heart is full of mercy. Do you see God as a a megalomaniac? Do you see God as angry and vengeful? Do you see God as mostly full of wrath? And occasionally those who are good enough get a little bit of his love. Do you see God as full of grace and forgiveness? Is is God just kind of like a thing for elderly people and, and adults, you know. It's not really for, for the young kids. But you can get serious about that stuff later on one day. Or it's, it's God just like a convenience, you know. He's there when you need him. The rest of the time, he's kind of in the way. <laughs> Is God outdated to you? Is God a tool to be used to get what you want? Is God an all-powerful being deserving of our worship and our praise to his mighty glory? When you think about God, what comes into mind. Maybe we see God as waiting for us to trip and fall, frustrated with us constantly, as we tend to be frustrated with our children. We see God in the same manner. Or we see God in the manner that we see our own fathers, whether that's good or bad. Or we see God as one who kind of lays a trap for us to fall in. Are we to see God as as a place of safety and a net to catch us when we fall? Are we seeing God as a as a place or a, a perpetrator of injustice, or we see God as a, a rescuer and a healer and a savior? We see God as 
letting little things slide and ultimately he's just a big giant teddy bear, you know. He doesn't really care about what we do and at the end he's going to love everybody and it's no big deal. Or do we see God as cold, indifferent, a perfectionist of sorts with no love and nobody seems to be able to meet his standards so why even try? Who is God to you? What God is to us, like I said, it often plays itself out now in our lives. Our doctrine, our theology, our understanding of God often reflects in how we live. Some would say our orthodoxy affects our orthopraxy, how we practice what we believe and how we live out what we come to know is true. Two extremes often tend to play out in life especially when we're talking about grace, how we see grace, how we see God's grace, or how we don't see God's grace or misinterpret his grace can often affect how you live your life. There's two extremes, and you've probably heard of the first one, maybe not the second one, but often as we think about grace and we think about God and what we think about him does reflect in how we live our lives, in particular with these two extremes. You could say two sides of a pendulum swing, one being legalism, one we're very familiar with, especially the book of Galatians speaks heavily into legalism with its rule keeping, its law keeping, and its standards. Holding others to those standards, our convictions to earn our God's grace by our merit and our rules that we think important that we need to keep, our excessive concern for minutia and details with a lack of concern of the internal or the heart, a concern for the outward with a neglect of the inward. One says legalism is this having a strict outward conformity to moral and religious practices and an expectation that others have that same understanding. What does a legalist think about God? The heart of a legalist is one who ultimately doesn't understand God's grace, doesn't understand God's forgiveness, and doesn't ultimately understand God's love. Tom Pyatt says, a legalist doubts the love of God's grace and forgiveness. He, God, he's, the legalist says, God can't love me this much. There, there must be strings attached to this grace, right? Like, Look here, there, there are commands. And if I follow those, then I'll please God enough to deserve his salvation, right? That's one side of the pendulum. The other side is an extreme form of what we would call, theologians would say, antinomianism. There's your, your word for the day. <laughs> it's a sense of laxity, carefree, misunderstanding about grace and sin and forgiveness to the point where there is no discipleship, there's only grace. There's no turning to God there's no repentance from sin. It's just a gift that, uh, that requires, in a sense, uh, no repentance. False teaching ultimately here says that faith alone is necessary for salvation, which is true, but one is, now free, one is free from moral obligations of the law. The heart of the antinomian sees no need for holiness, godliness, or any response away from sin. It, it assumes God's grace will abound and therefore sin has no matter and it, it doesn't continue and you can do as you please. Sin when you want because who cares? God's grace is enough. Obedience isn't important. Discipleship, living and following Jesus is not really all that important because there's always more grace. And there's hints of truth in every single one of these uh, pendulum swings. The antinomian doubts the love of God's commands and sees righteousness and spiritual disciplines as burdens instead of blessings. God wouldn't ask me to do that, Tom Pyatt writes this. He loves me. 
and gives up my sin. And, and the giving up sin sounds really hard and painful. And if he really wants what's best for me, he wouldn't make me give this up. And he wouldn't punish me for indulging in it. So instead of accepting our Heavenly Father's loving discipline and correction, we reject it. Confident that we know how to live a happier life without his guidance and commands and way. This sounds extreme, but it's more common than you might expect. There are smaller and lesser forms of it as it creeps into our lives. By neglecting anything organized or discipleship or following or conforming to the way of Jesus, and neglects the church as anything formal, and it smells, anything that smells of law, it throws out any discipline or habit of grace. It's ultimately spiritual anarchy. No need to go to church, that's so legalistic. No need to give any of my income to help others or to ministers or to the church or to minister to other people around me. You know, God will help them. God wouldn't require that of me anyways. I live in his grace. I'm free from that. Tom Pyatt's harkens a similar statement that Sinclair Ferguson shares. He says, both of these heresies, these sides of things, doubt God's love. Both heresies question God's word. Both heresies in the heart of hearts whisper the same doubts the Spirit spread in the Garden of Eden. Does God really love you? The legalist might think. And did God really say that? (laughs) The antinomian might say. And Paul writes the same thing about these two extremes when in regards to grace in Romans 5.20. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Amen, right? That's incredible. Where the sin may increase, grace abounds all the more. But what does Paul say in just a few verses right after that? Romans 6, 1. Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Don't you know, he goes on to say, don't you know you were buried and raised with Christ? You're now in, in a union with Christ and that changes everything about you. You're new. You have a new life, and now together with Christ, buried with him, raised with him, walking in newness of life as we celebrate in baptism, his resurrection will become your resurrection. This union with Christ, so how can you act like your sin is of no significance? So he, he says this, that ultimately this is so important when we think about the, the extremes of these two things that infect our lives in different ways, and then especially infect our view of God. Where we might always feel like we can get away with whatever and our sin doesn't matter and we can just go and live as we please. Or as if, so we take nothing serious about God in holiness and godliness and living and discipleship. Or we're so fearful of his correcting hand, we live in constant fear and worry and anxiety that we're not doing enough to please him. And we have this extreme and this extreme. And what I want to try to focus us on is this marvelous word of grace. And I want to be able to hone ourselves and our understanding of God to be a God and to see, to see God as a, as a great gift giver. I don't know if any of you thought what, it, what comes to mind when you think about God. You thought he's a giver. He gives. He is a giving God who gives us gifts of grace. That's what we're going to be focusing on. Gifts of grace and all it plays out in our lives. God is an, ex- an extraordinary giver. In the, the book of Ephesians, highlights many of these things. In Ephesians chapter one, verse seven, it talks about how, how in him, in Jesus, we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. God is rich in grace. And then this grace, it says in verse seven, 
he lavished upon us. He lavishes you in grace. You could say that works itself out in, in faith, in justification, sanctification, spiritual gifts, as we're talking about today, the gifts of grace, this regeneration, death to life, this propitiation, absorbing of wrath, this expiation and removing of guilt, all of these theological terms working itself out in the gift of salvation. Ephesians 2, what we just read, spoke about the grace that's given to us, that this kind of grace is shown to us, and it's a grace that is immeasurable. It's an immeasurable riches of his grace that are shown to us in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2, 7. And then it says, for by grace, that grace, that immeasurable grace, the grace that you cannot fathom, yet you cannot fully wrap your mind around, that grace, immeasurable grace, is poured out on you, is lavished on you, is given to you through Jesus Christ. It's like this, I even struggled in some ways to, to, to work out this series because this word grace is so deep. It's a grace, it's a word that's simple that I think even my daughter and my children can understand the word grace. And yet it's a word that once you start mining the depths of it, you never find the end of it. You keep going, tra- trying to figure out the depth of grace. Or it's almost like a diamond. As you turn that diamond and the light shines, it magnifies and reflects the light and refracts it into all sorts of spectrums of colors. You can't always define every single color that it magnifies. And as you turn it, the light changes and it becomes more and more beautiful as the light and the spectrum of light explodes onto us. And almost like you look down a kaleidoscope and as you turn that kaleidoscope, the the images and the pictures change and, and, and reflect and yet it's displaying the same image but in all variety of forms. And as we look at Jesus Christ and his grace, it, 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 there's so many aspects of grace that as we hone in on one, it just leads us to the next one. We look to the next one and it leads us to that one. And it, it's, a, it's a beautiful circle as it goes around and around and constantly points us back to this limitless, immeasurable, fathomless tank, this this well of grace, of living water that is found in Jesus Christ. And yet, there's a beautiful aspect that we find of grace is that it is a gift. It's something given. Grace in all its forms is a gift given to us by God. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. Faith. And it's not your own doing, right? It is a gift gift. It is the gift of God. Ephesians 4, 7, the grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. 1 Peter 4, 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. It's as if God gives various aspects of grace to his people, and now we are to steward the grace that he's poured out on you. So be a good steward of the grace that he's given you. God desires to give us good gifts. We love, as parents, giving good gifts to our children. Jesus reflects on this in Matthew 7, 11. If then you who are evil, you're like, yo, hey, whoa, relax, right? Jesus said it. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, don't you? Some of you already picked out Christmas shopping list for Christmas Day. You know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask of him? So this Christmas season, this first Sunday of Advent, it's absolutely crucial. We don't miss the greatest gift of all. The gift of grace, the grace of God, and the person of Jesus Christ. And we consider for a moment how much we have been given. 
Maybe some of you did that over Thanksgiving. You took some time around your table, and you maybe asked, hey, so what's everybody thankful for? Did you guys do that? You go around the table maybe and ask everybody, and even the little children, what are you thankful for? And oftentimes, there's, there's the basics that we have our, our basic answers for. But when you start really thinking, what is it that you're truly thankful for? What is it that you've been actually given that you have really nothing to do with, but it's been given to you completely, solely out of grace? Given. You receive. And when it comes to a time like Thanksgiving, you think of, wow, I am so thankful for this. What is that? That feeling of thanksgiving and gratitude. Now, if we come into that same concept that we just discussed, if we press into that and we think, well, I, <laughs> I deserve that, you know, gift. It's about time <laughs> somebody started giving me what I deserve, right? You know, finally, somebody gets around to giving me some good gifts, right? And you see all the stuff I've been doing? I've been faithful to church this whole year. I haven't missed one Sunday. Pretty good, huh? I don't know how many of you could say that. I don't name names. We don't judge here, right? <laughs> but we have that aspect where it's almost as if I don't really know if I'm all that bad. And frankly, I got a lot to be thankful for, but I did a lot to get that stuff. What I'm thankful for, it really had a lot to do with me. When it comes to salvation and our spiritual life and our riches and our inheritance in Christ, how much of that is up to you? And when we start thinking about ourselves, where we were apart from Christ, how much of that has to do with us? <laughs> when we don't really see ourselves, I'm frankly, I think sometimes I wake up, you know, we don't really see ourselves as all that bad. And therefore, I don't think we see God's grace as all that good. When we don't really see ourselves as Ephesians 2 sees us, then grace is just like kind of nice. Like it's, it's great, gifts of grace, Pictures, lights, Christmas, woohoo, right? But it's not like life or death. It's not really like life altering or transforming because, frankly, I probably would have gotten around to it anyways. <laughs> I would have figured it out on my own. But is that how God looks at us in a, and apart from Christ and without his grace? What is it that he sees? Grace, what is it, frankly? Grace is hard to define and yet so simple at the same time. Many of you might even say, if I were to ask you what is grace, you'd say grace is God's kindness to us when we deserve punishment. All right? Jerry Bridges says, grace is God's free and an unmerited favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve only judgment. It is the love of God shown to the unlovely. It is God reaching downwards to people who were in rebellion against him and giving them gifts of grace. Carl Truman says grace is far more than a mere attitude or sentiment in God. God does not turn a blind eye to human rebellion. In fact, he tackles it head on in the person and the work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible constantly connects grace to Christ. Ultimately, to talk about grace is to talk about Christ. They, they cannot be separated. And in fact, if you have a Bible with you, you could turn to John chapter 1. This is a passage we're going to be looking at over the coming weeks. 
potentially even on Christmas Day. I'm just trying to pray about where we're going to go there. But in John chapter 1, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but probably just two verses. The passage you might be familiar with is speaking about the word of God embodied in the person of Jesus being coming down to earth, enveloped and wrapped in flesh, dwelling with you and me, God, Emmanuel. And so John chapter 1 verse 14 And the word became flesh, right? The incarnation, Jesus Christ walking on the earth, Christmas time. That's what we celebrate, baby in a manger. This is verse 14. The word became flesh, Jesus, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And from that fullness, we skip down to verse 17. For in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth. And what is that grace that we've received? Look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, for from his fullness we have all received. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The gifts of grace. Your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You have received grace upon grace upon grace and upon grace. Over and over. That's why I think Paul says it's immeasurable Jesus is rich in grace and mercy. We've received this, even though we were in a state of decomposition. Go back to Ephesians chapter two. Verses one through three describe the state of decomposition. It's not a really lovely place to be. It's a rather stinky and smelly place to be, a place of decomposition, a dying, dead state. Look at Ephesians two, one. We read it, and you were dead. El muerte. <laughs> you are dead in the trespasses and sins. Trespasses. You have broken the law. You have crossed the line. Your sin, your iniquity. You have missed the mark. You have not met the standard. You have broken the law. You are on, you have crossed the line. All of these ways of looking at it. In which you once walked, you were following the course of the world, following the prince in the power of the air, which is now at work in you as a son of disobedience. In, in a sense, you are a, you're the walking dead, okay? You are walking, but you're dead. You're like a zombie apart from Christ. Yeah, I bet you didn't come in to hear uh, that in, in a Christmas service. We talked about zombies at church. But in a sense, that's exactly what we're talking about. You were dead, but you were still walking and following someone. You were walking in the course of this world, and you were following the prince and the power of the air. You were following your master, Satan, and you were not walking in the direction of God. James Montgomery points this out. He says this, for the benefit of those who didn't read about zombies or see any of that, he says a zombie is a person who has died, but who is nevertheless up walking around. To make matters worse, it's even more gruesome. The body's not only dead, but it's decaying, it's putrefying, and it's the most disgusting thing that any people can imagine. But that is what Paul says the human condition is before God. In their opposition to God, men and women are walking corpses. They are the living dead. They are an offense to God. They are spiritual corpses that stink. And you know, we don't think about ourselves like that every night and we wake up. Well, for many of us who walk up, we're living under grace these days. But if we don't understand where we were, where we came from, our flesh apart from Christ, I think we don't begin to value the gift of grace that we've been received, that we've received. We're following the course. Augustine describes human beings are 
that are like a horse, uh, and, and, and there is a rider on that horse directing that course. And we see either Christ is riding on that horse or Satan is riding that horse. And we're following a course and we're listening to a master and we're following a way. Which way will that be? The Bible often reflects about salvation as that. Following a narrow path or a broad way. Always describing two choices that are put before us. We're naturally inclined to this. This is our natural state of sin. We'd naturally gravitate away from this apart from Christ. We're children of wrath, it says. Sons and daughters of disobedience. We're following after the world. We're absorbing and conforming to the world. What does Romans 12 say? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Be different. Be set apart. In your body, in your mind, you were by nature children of wrath. Watch the news sometime. Go on social media. Have a nice happy conversation about politics over the dinner table. And you'll see. <laughs> and you'll see just how angry people can get at one another in a, in a short instant. It's natural to us. It comes from within us. Where does rivalries and dissensions and quarrels come? They come from us, James says. Day by day, we are living in this ordinary course, as, as, the, as the church calendar would say, the ordinary time. And then all of a sudden, there's a change. All of a the sudden, there's this normal course, there's this following after the way, leading to death. Our sin is controlling us and infecting us like a disease that we cannot cure. There's a direction we're headed and its path is not heaven, it's destruction. And then all of a sudden, verse four comes along. And aren't we thankful for that? <laughs> Are we thankful for verse four? Ephesians two, verse four. But God, being rich in mercy... See, most, some of the most powerful words in all the Bible, right there. A, a contraction, but God, there, with universal proportions. Seismic change. It's as if you're reading this depressing story, and then all of a sudden, you turn the page, and the rescue and the salvation has arrived. But God, being rich in mercy. Because of God's great love in which he loved us. Wait, who's the us? The people who were dead, the zombies. Because he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. He made us alive together with Christ. This passage, this but God being rich in mercy. That there, it, it, it is as if it, it reminds us of the Christmas season. It's the invasion of God to earth. It seems as to us almost an alien evasion <laughs> has come to rescue the zombies. Again, there you go. <laughs> we find ourselves in this place. We cannot rescue ourselves. We cannot meet God's standard. Sin has infected us and is killing us. And yet, in this moment, it is when God rescues us. His redemption comes to this earth. He redeems us. And so it's this time of year. It's the invasion of Jesus Christ. It's Christ in a manger that, that draws our mind, not just to the manger and how, how cute and quaint it is that God would come, but we know where he's going. We know he's going to the cross. We know he will conquer the grave and we know he will rise again. And then we know he's coming again. So it's, a, it's the God in the manger. It's Jesus wrapped in flesh that, that envelops every aspect of the gospel for we cannot be rescued or saved apart from that. It is in his coming 
that changes everything. As we sing, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. We see God through the face of Jesus Christ. And we think a moment just how incredibly magnificent, how startling of a rescue that that is. It's something we wouldn't come to expect, though we understand it in such a way that Christmas is here again, and how can we remind ourselves how important this is again? It's God condescending down, God wrapped in flesh, Jesus, the Son of God, coming down to earth, becoming like you and me. How is this even possible? We were dead. It's the dead of winter. It's the cold dark stone snow on snow in the bleak midwinter we find the grace of God but God comes and what does he do we were in a state of decomposition but God has come and in his love he pours out his grace upon us so that we can experience the marvelous gift of regeneration Regeneration, a big theological term. What what am I speaking about in that? Well, we read about it right here in verse five. Even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we are made us alive. Made us alive. Made us alive together with Christ. That is what regeneration means. God, keeping to his character, one who is rich in mercy and grace, comes to us who don't deserve it. He pours out his love. And even when we were dead, he makes us alive. Death to life. Where does our life come from? Where does the breath in your lungs come from? Did you put that breath there? Do you keep it there? Do you hold your soul in your own hands? Or is God, the great giver of life, the great originator of life, the very breath that's within humanity comes from God? What does it say in Genesis 1? God breathed into man the ruach, the spirit, the wind, the breath of life. That life we have, that breath in our lungs, God breathes that out spiritually through his Holy Spirit into your very soul and brings your dead soul to life. It's the miracle. It's it's marvelous. It's mysterious. We were alive in the garden, dead in our sin. Now we are regenerated in Christ. For this is what Jesus describes in John chapter 3. You familiar with the passage in John 3? Some of you, again, maybe are growing up in church or not. But you're probably familiar with John 3.16. For God so loved the world. But how do we get there? What's John 3 all about? John 3 is about a man who's suspicious of what's going on, a Pharisee. His name is Nicodemus. And yet he's desiring to understand this great gift of grace that God, through Jesus, is bringing and he can't fully fathom it. And so Jesus says in John 3, unless one is born again, he he cannot see the kingdom of God. For regeneration is like being born again. We we see unless one is born again, you, you can't see the kingdom of God. You can't be in the kingdom and I can't be your king unless you are born again. So Nicodemus is confused. How do I, wait, what? How do I, how do I get born again? I got to go crawl back into my mother's womb and be born of water again? How does that work? <laughs> no, 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 no. He says, unless, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Born of the flesh is what is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is, is spirit. 
And he says in verse 8, and, and, and the Spirit of God comes and it's like the wind. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound in the rustles of the trees. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. For there's a certain mystery to regeneration. When exactly is its initiating point? Trying to separate and divide them. When God calls, when God saves, when God justifies, when God sanctifies, often can feel like splitting hairs. <laughs> and it isn't always a clear, discernible event for many of you, many of like myself, have grown up in a Christian environment, have heard passages and scriptures. I've memorized this as a child, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love. We've memorized these things. We know of these things. And many of us, it's a slow process, a journey of faith where, where we grow in an understanding. And when is that moment of regeneration that occurs? We can't always say. For some of you, you've experienced a great, magnificent, startling shift in your life. And you can pinpoint the day, the moment, the hour, the minute when you came into a saving faith, when you came into an understanding of the gospel. It was a dramatic shift. You've seen that. And yet we've all experienced the same spirit. One faith, one baptism, one Lord. We've experienced this because we've experienced the gift of regeneration. Just as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, Jesus says in verse 14 and verse 15 of, of John 3, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him would have what? Eternal life. It's not just a life that is for a temporary period of time. It's a life that is an eternal aspect of life. John 3.16, he says right after that. For this is how we get here. Because all that leading up, you must be born again. Why? How? How does this work? Well, because God loved the world. He gave his only son, Christmas. <laughs> that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life, Easter. <laughs> but God so loved the world. He loved you. He's rich in love. He's rich in grace. He loves you so much that he wants to make you alive. We become, as the phrase, are you a born-again Christian, we might say. What does that mean? That's from John 3. That's regeneration. What does it mean to be born again? Colossians 2.13, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses, the miracle of new life becomes all the more miraculous when we see our state of sin, our state of death that we were in earlier without Christ. You were dead. But now what does the passage say in Ephesians 2? That we are made alive, the ESV says, together with Christ. We're made alive. Not just to be ushered out on your own and to figure out what it is to be you, but rather you are brought into union with someone, into a relationship with someone to follow his ways and to be transformed into his likeness. You are brought into union with Christ. It's an incredible state of being. And that's why so much of what we do in our life matters because we are in a union with Christ. It's a covenant between Christ and his people that his death, Jesus' death, in our faith in that death becomes our death. So that in Jesus' life and resurrection, our life and resurrection become ours as well. His, his life and resurrection become ours. We are in union with him. It's his perfection, his holiness, his godliness that we are infused with him that empower us to become like him. It's the word coming to us to bring us together again. It's Ephesians 2. But God being rich in mercy 
because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. And then as we are with Christ, the incarnation brings Jesus down, Emmanuel, God with us, the baby in the manger as he walks upon the earth, as he eats food like we eat, as he's beaten and feels pain like we feel pain, as he experiences betrayal like we've been betrayed, as he endures all of the temptations and yet remains pure and through it all, conquers sin, as he comes into that place, he comes above it all. He, he's conquering it. He's victorious above it. And it's in that that we unite with him. The incarnation. And we join with him in his death. We join with him in his life. And we join with him in his return. And that's what's beautiful about it. That we are as if it is in the past tense. Because it's already going to happen. It's sure. It can't be taken away. Verse 6. That by grace we've been saved. Verse 6. And raised us up with him. We're seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's as if that, so that in the coming ages, he would be able to show the immeasurable riches of his grace. That he brings us together with him. That it is in the riches of his grace that he pours out upon us. For, verse eight, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's not grace if it's your own doing. If you can boast and think you're better than someone else because you've earned God's favor, then it's not grace. It's a competition. It's something that we're competing with one another. But because it's all about grace, where you sit and where I stand, we're in the same place. Isn't that awesome? We're in the same place because we're all at the foot of the cross. We all need Jesus. We all need his grace and forgiveness. There's nobody here, past, present, future, who will come, who is exempt from this. Only but the person of Jesus. And now we find ourselves not isolated on an island, but in this Christmas season, we find ourselves joined together as one. One body, the church of Jesus Christ, who together... There is no partiality, no background, no nothing that matters anything to God for we were dead, all of us. But now because of Christ and his forgiveness and grace, through faith in him, we are now made unified together with him, with Christ, in relationship with him, holy and made godly as we walk with him, together with Christ. Is there any greater gift I don't think so. <laughs> Is there anything else that we should be more thankful for than the gift of regeneration, than the gift of the gospel, than the gift of his grace? We'd be hard pressed to come up with anything. For this is an eternal gift. It can't be taken away. It can't be broken. It can't be stolen. It's something that we share together, that we have forever, and it's all because of Jesus. Let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you I thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that is found within it. Lord, I know there are so many things about who we are and what we are in our past that haunt us at a constant basis. Lord, help us to live in light of your grace. I ask God that you would open the eyes of the people here today. You would allow us to see who you are in a different way, in a different light in such a way that we have a renewed sense of love for you. 
Give us a heart that yearns for godliness, a a heart that yearns for holiness because we find ourselves unified together with Christ. Thank you for saving us. We don't know what else to say. We don't know how, how to act. Teach us how to act. Teach us how to live. Be our way. Be our teacher as we, the disciples, follow you. Help us to love you in a, in a way this Christmas that we've never done before. Give us this, this renewed sense of your grace. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of grace. In Jesus' name we pray.